0: we we've, we've had this long series this this i'm people tell me ask me sometimes how you know john how's it gone and i tell them i've told you this it wrecked it wrecked me the book of john just wrecked me in a such a good way but god just has dealt with me and turned parts of my life upside down and shook me up and got in my face and said bob what are you doing listen to me listen to me truly truly i say to you that 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 Greek phrase for listen closely. And now we're at the very last of John chapter 21, last of the book of John. So I want to read you this passage. It's John 21, 15 to 25. And it's a very famous, at least part of this very famous passage. A lot of people are very aware of it. We're going to look at this and see how it impacts us. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the testimony This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So, we're in John 21, we're at this famous scene that we've already seen Jesus appeared to them. They had another miraculous catch which linked to the earlier miraculous catch and dealt with Peter, pretty tough. Peter had to do some real reckoning here and it's gonna continue. And then Jesus makes a fire and says, I'm gonna cook you breakfast. We have, we have a savior who cooks breakfast for us. He came to serve, right? Not to be served, he told them that. And so we're seeing all of that happening and now we have this happening there by the fire or perhaps they went for a walk, you know, the part where it says, John, the one who followed that really means he was the one who was nearby, right there. So he could, within uh, the idea is within hearing distance. But we have this, this incredible situation that's going on. And I want to just say one thing before we get started. And that is this. We're going to touch on some things that for some people might be a little traumatic, maybe triggering, I'm not sure if that would be the right way to say it, but this, we're going to look at some stuff that's tough in our lives, and we're going to dig up things, because that's what's going on here. And so I just want to warn you that that's what's going to happen. And uh, Jesus has been teaching, in the whole book of John, he's been teaching his disciples, this is how you live in the world. He's been teaching them, what does it mean to obey this command follow me. What does that mean? Read the book of John. It'll tell you exactly what it means. And it's, and it's coming to a conclusion right now. Because the book of John starts with follow me and it ends with follow me. The disciples now can see just how committed Jesus is to them. So now the question is, how committed are they to him, especially Peter? Because the resurrection has happened. Resurrection has happened. we know that it 's been a little bit of time i don 't know if it 's been a week or two or three weeks or something like that and what 's happening now is life goes on right Life goes on when, when I first came to Christ, I was so excited. it was just such a powerful thing. you know it was just like it's, it's new, it was crazy, it was wild I felt uh, it, and then you know like after a while, life just kept going on, and it 's easy to kind of go. And maybe for them, what's next? What's next? They still have to live. They still have problems. We still have to live. We still have problems. We're still living in a broken world where terrible things happen, where children are murdered in cold blood, where abuse happens, where nations oppress nations. We see that all the time. So what now? Because we are still living in a broken world. But what the resurrection offers is what we all want deep inside. I mean, deep inside, people want hope for the future. People want a power to live differently in this world, to live above their problems maybe still in them, but able to to, uh, live in them in a way that's powerful. So how do we get there from here? And this passage is going to show us something. It's going to show us how powerful Jesus is, even in the daily simple things of life. When Jesus is in it, even the boring, obscure things become powerful. A simple meal becomes life-changing for Peter, for the disciples, and for us. So, just like we say so many times, now try to put yourself into the situation. I know it's hard because we don't live in that culture, but now let's kind of get into Peter's shoes a little bit. He has seen the hope and the power of the resurrection. He's met with Jesus twice before, at least twice before, and, and he's just now he knows, he's res- he raised from the dead, he's God. It's awesome and it's powerful. But it also points to something that's deep and dark in his life. Lots of us, probably all of us, have some deep and dark things in our lives. And just like this passage, we need Jesus to deal with them then we can know what it is to be the kind of person who's not moved, the kind of person who's not not cowed by what others think, the kind of person who's a person of integrity even in the most difficult situations, to become a person who is transparent, who's open and honest to those around him. So let's start with this. My first point is what Peter knows, and I want us just to take the corollary that what we know Okay, so what does Peter know here? In the midst of this situation, what does he know? And and there's a lot of things that we can see lead to this. He says, but I think what's happening is Peter is, is understanding, I'm not the person that others think I am. And he's also kind of understanding, I realize I'm not the person that sometimes I think I am. He sees Jesus here He sees all of this and then we go through this and it's going to be this powerful reminder of what he did by the fire in the courtyard at Jesus' trial. This This is all linked together. Peter comes off in public as strong and brave but Jesus is saying to him, you know and I know that you're not. And it started earlier in this passage when we talked about Simon was being forced to remember his earlier call. We went back, we went back to the first miraculous catch, the first time Jesus called him. And you remember what his, he, he was like, I'm, I'm a terrible person, you, you need to get away with me. And Jesus told him, follow me and you will become fishers of men. You'll become a fisher of men. And they're around a fire. And, and this, is, this is what's interesting. In, uh, in, in, the, in the word for fire, especially in the courtyard where, uh, Jesus, where Peter denied Jesus, it has a, it's a very specific word. There's more than one word in the Greek for fire, right? We have to use, at least we talk about a blazing fire, a bonfire. I love bonfires. I burn stuff in my backyard. I burn furniture. I burn beds. I burn all kinds of stuff because I love big fires. Yes, so now, if there's a big fire in my neighborhood, everybody's going to go uh, I think I know who did it, but I, I love that there's a that's a blazing or that's a bonfire and then there, then there's this kind of fire that kind of, and then there's then there's what's called in and, and, and one of the versions uses it's called a charcoal fire. what is that That's a fire that was blazing and has now burnt down, so it's just all red embers. You know those kind of fires it's beautiful to stare at, isn't it? You stare into all that red that just kind of glows there's not a lot of flames and you just want to stick your hand in there. And, it, and that's the perfect fire for cooking. That's the perfect fire for cooking because you can get close to it. You have to be close to it to get the heat. It's not blazing that makes you step away. It, it's this, and they call it a charcoal fire. And it's interesting because that's the word for fire in the courtyard. And in the first part of John 21, it says Jesus was around a, and John makes sure he says it, a charcoal fire. Because that's the right fire for cooking. But he's linking This is making Peter relive something. We all have things we don't want to relive. And so three times, he's gonna talk to him. We're gonna break that down some more, but he does it three times so that Peter knows exactly what's going on. And so do the others. Why? Because there is here a shame and a guilt that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. You know, in our world, we post the best about ourselves, don't we? We tend to post the happy things. We show a nice meal we're having. We show pictures of us on vacation. We post all these kinds of things. No one usually posts when they're being mean to someone. Here I am, you know, here's a picture of me yelling at a little kid. We don't post that. No one posts when they're mean to their own kids. We don't post things like, um, sometimes I wonder how nice it would be not to have kids. We don't post that. We don't post, my elderly parents are such a burden. We don't post that. We don't post, sometimes I don't like my husband or my wife. Sometimes I don't love my husband or my wife. We don't post those things, right? That's not something we put out there. We don't show how bad we are. We give the sanitized version, the clean version. We make jokes about not liking our kids, but we don't just say, you know what? I really don't like them. We don't say that. But that's who we are, sometimes. There are times we put masks on because we're insecure or we worry or we fear rejection. We wonder, do people really like me? Because if they do, they don't really know me. And this this is where, I mean, in his shoes now, this is where Peter is. He's reliving the courtyard. And it is killing him. It's tough. He betrayed his friend at his friend's most Vulnerable moment. Now you think about think about the, the magnitude of this betrayal, how huge it is. How many of you could forgive that? Why did he do it? Because you know what? I really believe, hold on, Peter loves Jesus. But in the heat of a moment, in the heat of the moment, such a betrayal. Why do we do mean things? why do we sometimes say hurtful things why do we sometimes think terrible things even if we know we won't do them but we think about them and go man I wish or sometimes sometimes we even think if I could get away with it I would do it if no one in the world could see me and I knew I knew no one would see me I'd do it that's that's where we're at. Why do we cut corners and follow the crowd? Because we want to be accepted. Why do we tell people what they want to hear and not necessarily the truth? Fear of rejection. Why do we lie or we just don't tell the whole truth? You know, we shade the truth. That's the fear of adverse consequences. We have these things we're dealing with, and then out comes later the guilt and the shame. I want to show you. I've, I've been looking at two books. They're just, they're awesome. One is uh, a man called Lewis Smedes. He wrote a book called Shame and Grace. And this is what he put. The difference between shame and guilt is clear. A person feels guilt because he or she did something wrong. A person feels shame because they are something wrong. There's something wrong going on here, I feel. And I wanna tell you something. I know I'm not exploring all the nuances of shame and guilt. I'm painting with a broad brush, but I want you to see what some people have said. There's a guy named Edward Welch. And he wrote a book called Shame Interrupted. Shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you or something associated with you. You can feel exposed or betrayed. And here's the thing. It's not always, you know, people will say, oh, it's not your fault. It isn't your fault a lot of times. I understand that. If you've been abused, if you've been treated terribly, it was not your fault. But you know what? People who have dealt with stuff like that, they tell me, I still feel ruined. I know it's not my fault. But I still, I still feel terrible about me. There's something there. One time in high school, hmm, I cheated on a test. And I got caught in the middle of the test. And I felt guilty for cheating on the test. I knew I'd done wrong. But what hurt even more was I felt ashamed for being the kind of person that would cheat on a test. And I really felt ashamed that I was exposed as the kind of person who would cheat on a test to the whole class. Everyone saw it. I still still can feel small and worthless as I remember that. I hate talking about it, I hate remembering it. Because shame is deep. And you might say, you know, Bob, is that all you did? (laughs) That's not that bad. And I'm telling you, that's all I'm willing to share with you. I'm waiting for the statute of limitations to run out on a few other things. And then we can go deeper. But what happens? What happens? We hide and we pretend. It started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, what happened? They decided they wanted to be in control. They knew better than God. And what happened to them? They ended up naked and unashamed and ashamed, I should say. They were naked and ashamed. They had betrayed God. They were trying to be themselves apart from God, and then suddenly they were ashamed. One writer writes that it's the sense of unease with ourselves at the heart of our very being. And this is what Peter's dealing with. This is what we deal with. There's an unease here. We try to find identity. We try to find acceptance, self-worth in all kinds of things. Why? Because we left God. We cover ourselves with fig leaves, fig leaves of sex and romance, of power and money, of homes and cars, of positions and authority. And we have to admit, sometimes we just realize I'm not okay. And we need what Peter's going to get here. We need soul surgery. What Peter knows is what we know. What Peter needs is what we need. And this is from what we read. This starts with verse 15. And then when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my sheep. This is difficult. I can imagine this was difficult for the other disciples, for John to watch, but really difficult for Peter to be in. It's done openly right there. All the things are reminding Peter, the fire, you know, the, the, the three times it's from driving home, Peter, you betrayed me. Peter, you betrayed me. Peter, three times he asks him. But it's, this is the restoration of Peter. This deals with something very deep in him that needs to be dealt with. And also, it promotes him to a role. It tells all the other people around him that Peter's going to be a leader. He's not as disqualified as he may think. He's not as dis- disqualified as they may think. But one of the things, the threes, you know, that we that go on here, and and I know people go on about the, the Greek word for love, and I'm not sure if there's as much there that some people think there is, but there's something to me that's even more interesting. Do you know what Je- Do you understand what Jesus? Do you see what Jesus calls him? That's the word I was looking for. He calls him Simon, son of John. Jesus gave him the name Peter. He said to him. Your name is Simon, but now I change your name to Peter. And suddenly Jesus goes, Simon, son of John. And I don't know exactly everything that's going on here. But one of the things that's very interesting to me is that Simon, the name Simon means to hear. It's from the the Hebrew word Shimon, which comes from the root Shema. Now that's key. Because the Shema is what every uh, faithful Jew recited in the morning and in the evening every day of their life, and it begins with "Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one," and and it quotes from Deuteronomy, and they bring in a couple other passages that are passages of praise, passages of worship, passages of recognition of the greatness of God. And it, it hit me. I was thinking of this because when we were singing, and especially in those days, godly Jews would cover their eyes when they said the first part, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Why? Because they wanted to block out anything that could distract them from recognizing the greatness of God. And Peter is named after that. His name is Simon, and it's from here, O Israel. It means to hear. And it's like Jesus is telling him, listen to me now. Don't miss this. Don't miss. By using his his original name Simon, he's jarring him. Understand what's going on here. And Peter is struggling with it, he's struggling with it. But he wants to catch us and he wants to make him think, Simon, listen to me, listen to me. And then he says to him in the first one, the first time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now this is something that people struggle with a lot. What are, what are the these? But I think it, it really is pretty awesome. Some people say, well, maybe it's do you love me more than fishing because they were fishing. Or maybe it's, do you love me more than you love these other guys, these other people around you? Or do you love me more than they do? Do you really love me more than they do? Because this is where I think he's reminding him of something. Because the night before Jesus died, Peter said this, even, even, because Jesus said, all of you are going to deny me. And Peter said in front of the other disciples, even if all of them fall away on account of you, I will never fall away. I will never betray you. Even if these other losers betray you, Jesus, not me. Not me. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this very night, you will disown me. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That word disown is the word we translate also betray. I will never betray you, Jesus. And that's still ringing in his ears because he didn't say it that long ago. It was the night before Jesus was crucified. This is the deep pain. He disowned Jesus. After promising Jesus to his face the night before, I will not, he disowned him. Imagine the regret that Peter has to struggle with here. Imagine the shame. This is, a, this is I mean, it's a surgery of the soul. Peter's going under the knife, and it's painful. But not all pain is bad, right? You could be walking down the street, and some guy runs up and stabs you and steals your wallet, and that is, you just went under the knife, and that's bad pain. But also, you could go to a hospital, and a man or a woman stabs you with a knife and takes out your infected organ that was going to kill you. And that's a good pain. And Peter's under the knife because surgery is going on here. Jesus cooks them breakfast because he loves them and he serves them. Jesus performed that miracle catch because he loves them and he serves him. And now Peter, Jesus is performing uh, surgery on Peter's soul, why? Because he loves him and he serves him. In our culture, we're always trying to get rid of these types of things, this guilt, this shame. And those two are so intimately related and I know there is a false guilt. I know there is a false shame that people can put on you and, and especially in areas of abuse and different things like that and you will feel ashamed and you will feel violated and ruined and contaminated and our culture says, well, don't feel that way. It's not your fault. I mentioned that. It's not your fault. You shouldn't, you should But the problem is you can't help it. You can't make yourself not feel something. You can't do it. Can it be reversed? Yes, Jesus brings healing. Jesus brings this new identity. Jesus brings new meaning so that you are not ruined. You become purposeful. You become meaningful. Peter does not want to be Simon the betrayer anymore. Peter wants to be Peter the rock, which is what his name means. And so do we. So feel what he's feeling. In this three-part question, Peter is feeling the distance between the real and the ideal. He's feeling the distance between what he says he is and what happens sometimes in real life in his life. And there's a great distance there between what I thought I was and what I proved to be. And this pain is bringing hope. Jesus is saying, Peter, you have a mission. I'm not done with you. You're going to be a leader. You have an identity. You have a mission. You have a meaning. It's interesting because I think about this when I'm doing some reading on godly sorrow, and there's more there than we can get in today, but I love this verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, godly sorrow is not just the sorrow of being caught. That's what happens a lot of them, that, right? That's what happens with our kids, When your kids are little, especially when they're little. No, wait a minute. It happens when they're big too. All right, this is what happens with your kids, right? They do something wrong and you find out and all of a sudden, (laughs) right, why? Because they got caught. There wouldn't be, (laughs) if they hadn't got caught. It's only because they got caught. So that's a form of sorrow. But the whole thing is it has to move past that. A sorrow over the pain that I've caused another person makes it relational. Worldly sorrow, this sorrow of being caught or being found out, oftentimes for people, it just makes them decide to get better at what they did and not get caught. That's the answer. They're sorry they got caught, I need to do better at this. But even if you get so good that you're never found out, God knows, and there will be justice. At the end, at least, there will be justice. But in the meantime, you're trapped in this deadening spiral of deceit and lies. But godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow means I want to change. I don't want to do that. I see what that has done to other people. I see what it does to me. But mostly I see what it's done to other people, what it's doing to the people around me. Then I realize how bad it is. See, when Peter betrayed Jesus, he's beginning to see, I didn't just break a rule. I didn't just break Torah. I betrayed my friend. I betrayed my Savior. That's why at that one point he says, Lord, you know everything. Lord, you know everything. You know how bad I am. You know that I really love you, but I struggle. You know everything. You know I'm at the bottom. Peter, you can feel it. He's upset three times, reminded of sin. He says, Jesus, you know everything. I'm at your mercy, which is a great place to be. He's at his wit's end, which means he's at the beginning of something incredible. And so, Hugh, he gets what he needs. How did I do that? How he gets what he needs. You know, I read this a couple times to make sure. And Spellcheck didn't say one thing about this. Because they think I'm a lumberjack hewing wood or something. I don't know. How he gets what he needs. How we get what we need. The source of his healing Shows him the pattern of his life. What does he want to be? What do you want to be? How do you find meaning and fullness? Jesus says, very truly. Here we go. This is the last time it's used in the book of John and the many times it's used, the truly, truly. That is, I am speaking an important truth. Listen to me. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old and you but when you are old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, "Follow me." That's pretty strong when you think about it. Jesus is saying, you know, when you were younger you could do whatever you want. You could just go. Now, no, it's different now. It's different now. I want you to follow me your life will be different than what you thought if all you want to do is live the american dream jesus is saying your goal is way too small your bar is way too low there's so much more than that there's so much more The Christian life oftentimes is the opposite of what we think. We like to think that we're in control, like Peter did when he was young. You know, in our culture, freedom kind of means, just generally speaking, people would say this, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. But in Jesus, freedom is completely different. We have the freedom to die to ourselves. We have the freedom to serve others. How do we heal a sense of unworthiness, that shame, overcome a sense of rejection, that so many people walk around with. And we can relativize it. That is just try to get rid of it, diminish it. I'm not that bad. But justice always comes. We can't hide from it. Some people use moral effort. I'm resolving to be a better person. And what a heavy burden that is. Right? Just around the first of the year, when everybody makes a New Year's resolution, and then after a couple months, they all go by the wayside because it's a burden. I can't do it. This is the Pharisees. No one can do it completely. When we shoulder these heavy burdens, it leads to hopelessness. It leads to a lack of self-awareness. All these people walking around by the, just, just bent over with heavy burdens, critiquing and criticizing other people who aren't as heavily burdened as they are or don't seem to do what they think they should be doing. We we need someone to do it for us. The only answer is grace. Grace allows for justice because someone else bears the burden for us. Grace makes acceptance available to the unacceptable. Grace makes us worthy when we are not worthy. And this is where the healing is, when we begin to grapple with the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter says you're going to be led to where you don't go. Your arms are going to be stretched out wide. It's about his manner of death. But that's what Jesus has already done for us. Jesus did that for us. And these three tough questions that Peter is having to deal with, that Jesus is asking him, is actually Jesus reassuring Peter I love you. I have work for you. I have work for you in my kingdom. This is so important. And we need these also because why does Scripture tell us that we love Him? Scripture says we love Him because He first loved us. He took the first step. He's the one who reached out to us. He, we love Him because He first loved us. And He showed His love by dying for us. And in the grace that is in the midst of Peter's pain right now at this beach is Jesus saying, Peter, I died for you. And we talked about that, how that came across to Mary, too. But here now is Peter. Peter, do you understand? I didn't just die for the whole world. I died for you. You, 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 and you, and you, and you, and you, you and me. He's saying, understand that, Peter. This is so important for you to understand. I died for you. The uh, one of the I think it's Lewis Smedes wrote this the surest cure for feeling unacceptable as a person is we are accepted by the grace of the one whose acceptance matters the most. So how do we know that we are worthy? How do we know we are acceptable? We need someone who we value more than anything else in the world to say you are beautiful. You are worthy. You are beloved. The God of the universe took your guilt and shame. And now he says, you are righteous, you are worthy, you are acceptable, you are beautiful. All because Jesus died for you. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing in the world. God looks at your, what, I don't know, spiritual bank account, and he says, it's full. It's full of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to you. When a person decides that they are going to accept Christ as their Savior, when a person decides, they realize, I'm a sinner. He died for my sins. I need him. And they yield to him. He says, this is what happens. The theological statement is imputation. Money is transferred from one bank account to another. Righteousness is transferred from one person's account to another. And you become righteous. Peter needed this. The love of his Savior saying, follow me. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who, who is it that will betray you? And Peter saw him. He said, Lord, what about him? I love this. This is just kind of Peter, right? He's walking along. He's going, oh, wow. Okay, God. You're worth serving, even if it means my death. What about, you see, what's going to happen to him? You know, it makes it sound kind of like that. Maybe he's just saying, what's his job in the kingdom too? We don't know for sure. But it does kind of sound like Peter going, eh. And Jesus tells him. He says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And this is the key, you must follow me. You see, we're following Jesus, not other people. So, we're comparing ourselves. If we're comparing ourselves to other people, we're doing it all wrong. There's no comparison. We don't compare. And as this is, the, this is a, a, a lifelong truth. Comparison is the robber of joy. If you compare yourselves to other people, you will rob yourself of joy every time. Because what will happen? You will look at someone and you'll think I'm worse than them and it'll rob you of your joy. You look at someone and you will think I'm better than them. And then then you will become like an elitist. You'll think you'll become like a Pharisee and there will be no joy in it. And so here he's saying, look, this is none of your business, Peter. I'm calling him. He's got his job. You got yours. Here's your job, Peter. Follow me. Here's your job for all of us. Here's your job, Bob. Follow me. Just follow me. Not John, not Peter. Follow me. And he says, it doesn't matter you know, what, what I do with him. And then none of the disciples... Uh, oh, this, this is... A, this, yeah, I got ahead of myself. So he says to him, if I want him to remain alive... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm at the right spot. No, I'm not at the right spot. I changed something here. Anyways, the last two verses says, this is, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Okay, this is the end of the book. They're signing off. And it, it very well could be that John has people who are writing for him. He's very old and he has stenographers. And they're saying, you know, this, John, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down through us. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that were to be written. And so they're signing off. Jesus has been saying, Peter, I love you. Peter, I want you. Peter, I choose you. Follow me. He says the same thing to us. And the pattern of your life comes from the source of your life. Where are you finding life? That's the key. Where are you finding life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, in all of these things, God, I yield to you. Help us all, Lord, to follow the pattern of your life. Help us to be people who will follow you. Lord, thank you for the healing that you bring to those who are discouraged, for those who feel terror, for those who have gone through horrific things. You can bring healing and peace, and hope, and even joy. And Lord, we thank you that you're the kind of God that is interested in doing that in people's lives. You're interested in being a servant and serve us in a way that we can't comprehend fully. And so, Lord, we thank you. Help us to become people who follow closely after our Rabbi Jesus, because it's in his name that we can pray this. Amen.